Hello, Katawantok. Here come the Pacific waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up. It is highly likely that we may have some electricity shared null and void. Failed elections are likely for some PNG electorates as polling draws to a close. They had um, quite a bit of disruption through their property and it's not going to be an overnight fix. Freak ocean waves wreak havoc in eastern Polynesia and later on in the programme... When a Pacific woman goes to work, she will earn 75 cents in the dollar to a Pākehā man. New Zealand government and business urged to address pay gap for Pacifica. Voting in the Papua New Guinea national elections is officially meant to end on Friday, but extensions in some electorates are likely. Don Wiseman spoke with RNZ Pacific's correspondent in Papua New Guinea, Scott Waide, to look at the latest developments, including the horrific murders of 18 people in a remote part of Enga province near the Pogera mine. As far as we know, it was a conflict that's been seething for many, many years, a conflict between two clans, and that has spiraled out of control because apparently the leaders were waiting for the polling to end before they resumed their fighting. So the people who were killed were not people who were actually fighting, people who took part in the fighting. These were, from the pictures I've seen, a lot of women who were killed, a good number of women killed within the church area. So it's that kind of violence that is very worrying for many people in Papua New Guinea. And a lot of people have become kind of used to seeing trouble in that part of the region, but large numbers of people killed in one go is still very, very upsetting. I think the police commander said that these people, they had no respect for the sanctity of human life. There was a similar case a few years ago uh, in Tari where uh, 16 women and children were killed. So it's on the border regions, you know, Pogra, Tari, towards where the mine is. And, and that region is a hotspot where it's difficult to police because it's a very mountainous. Road access is difficult. And because the language and the culture, the clans are very closely related, the population is very migratory. They, they move from one location to another. Uh, and that's how the people who are involved in the fighting hide and, and continue to do this violence. You mentioned earlier that this fighting at Enga and and other events have not really been because of the election, but their impact on the election is going to be huge still, isn't it? Yes. I mean, you're talking about large populations of people being displaced in some areas where polling hasn't even started yet or has started or about to start. So it's affecting elections in a big, big way. And it's also affecting, you know, the placement of security forces because elections are a time where you know you, you move security forces from one location to another and particularly uh, in the highlands government successive governments have chosen to do the highlands first uh, and then do other other places security operations and ele- uh, polling in other places because it's easier to go into the highlands and then manage that particular area first and then do polling in other areas. But for this one, with the exit of ballot papers and polling materials after polling has been done, you'd expect the exit of security forces as well, but security forces have had to remain in that area because the violence has escalated. That puts pressure on the strained resources that we already have. Meantime, uh, polling has continued uh, in many areas without any trouble at all. 
polling is meant to stop on Friday, isn't it? Is it going to be completed? Are they going to be able to stop or will they have to extend? No, from experience, they might have to extend for a day or two. Say, for example, in the Western province, it's difficult to do a a day's polling in the Western province because it's such a far-flung area. You have to fly polling teams in. They have to take ballot boxes and walk for several kilometers before people actually start voting. There was a... An instance in the Gulf province uh, in the last two days where frustrated voters actually packed food in one of the ballot boxes and sent it back to polling officials because they said, you know, we haven't received any services in the last five years. So this is our statement. Send it back to the polling teams because if ballot boxes can come to our area, why can't services? So, you know, stories like this that keep coming up. Uh, during elections. So yes, polling will most likely be extended in some areas. We've had countless reports of ballot boxes going missing or ballot boxes being burnt. Are we going to have elections that are cancelled and then they go later to buy elections? Has there been any more progress on that? It is highly likely that we may have some electorates declared null and void. Uh, or failed elections, as they as they call it. And the police commissioner has also appealed for people to stop hijacking ballot boxes, stop the violence, uh, appeal to them to stop the violence in certain areas. And he's he hasn't minced his words. He's said that uh, if this continues, Royal Papua New Guinea Constabulary and him as commissioner will request to the uh, make a request to the electoral commission to declare certain electorates as. Uh, elections has failed in, in those electorates and for them to go to a by-election. And the instances where ballot boxes have been hijacked, it's unprecedented the number of uh, instances that we've seen in this election. And people have acted with impunity uh, and even recorded themselves doing all, all this nonsense. Well, a week and a half ago, we heard that the Prime Minister or the caretaker Prime Minister, James Marape, had been re-elected in his seat in Tari. We've got a few more results now. Many, many results so far? Well, the incumbent Deputy Prime Minister, uh, John Rosso, in May was declared about two days ago. So you've got two key positions in the former government declared. Well, holders of the key positions, the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister. I, I am in WIWAC now, and there's a... Uh, a Pangu delegation that's arrived in WIWAC, all the accommodations booked out, they're, they're holding camp here uh, and they will be here for at least uh, a few weeks before the formation of government. And we can expect to see other candidates being courted and being brought into the WIWAC camp here to see if they can muster the numbers to, to form government in, in, in the next few weeks. King tides and low depressions in eastern Polynesia over the last week have created freak waves that struck coastal communities across several island countries, causing flooding and damaging infrastructure. Most of the damage was reported in French Polynesia and the Cook Islands, with waves reported to be up to six metres high. Final Funua reports. General manager of the Maori Beach Club Resort in the Cook Islands, Liana Scott, says there's no widespread destruction but the main beach resorts did sustain some extensive damage. Probably the one resort that did suffer the most is one of the larger ones on the island, and they had um, quite a bit of destruction through their property. And it's not going to be an overnight fix, but everywhere else is, is kind of business as normal. In French Polynesia, the damage was costly, 
estimated to be in the millions. Roads, port structures, homes and resorts were damaged. Vice President of the Territory Jean-Christophe Boyosu declared a state of natural disaster. For those affected, the cost of the damage will be taken care of by the state's budget. In terms of housing, normally the state takes care of this. The community solidarity will help those in need, for example, of mattresses and refrigerators. Meteorologists from around the region say there are a combination of reasons for the sudden surge in ocean swells. King tides caused by a full moon, in combination with a jet stream generated by a storm system in the South Pacific Ocean. National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research scientist in New Zealand, Conan Andrews, says. So that's elevating uh, the water levels and that's causing uh, the issues there. Um, In the French Polynesia and I think American Samoa is also getting hit by storm events. Same process is happening there. It's very long period swells resulting in waves set up, coinciding with a high tide. In Hawaii, high waves resulted in the closure of beaches across the island group. Beachside homes were damaged and roads were cordoned off. Meteorologist Derek Rowe for Hawaii's National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration says the swells were the largest the island group experienced in 25 years. We had a couple of instances where waves crashed ashore. Some of the larger set waves that came through uh, crashed ashore and some of the more prone areas that were lower. Uh, right now our tides aren't really any different than, than we'd expect to see this time of year. It was just that period of extremely large swell where we had some impacts. Another factor meteorologists say contributed to the freak event is sea level rising due to climate change. Conan Andrews says the gradually increasing elevation of sea levels are exacerbating ocean surges. The issue is that it's just a a very um, uh, strong event that coincides with high tides. But uh, with climate change, uh, of course, that there is an increase in sea levels, and that's going to that will um, exacerbate the inundation hazard going forward. The financial issues faced by the University of the South Pacific are expected to continue, with the Fiji government making no budget allocation to meet its debts to the institution. The government has also refused to pay its grant for the past two years because of a rift with the Vice-Chancellor, Paul Alwalia. But a man who worked for the USP for 40 years, economist Wadan Nasi, believes he has a solution. Don Wiseman spoke with Professor Nasi, who said the USP has been a significant example of the regionalism the Pacific Islands Forum is striving for. It is the finest example, you know, although it has now developed all kinds of cracks, which everybody can see. But, you know, when, when, when the Pacific Island Forum people talk about unity and maintaining unity, the first thing they should be thinking about is maintaining unity on principle. Now, you've got 12 member countries of the university, out of whom 11 of them are paying their bill to USC for the students that are being taught at USC. And one of them, unilaterally, two years ago, said, oh, we're not going to pay our bill. We're going to take our loaf of bread from the shop. We're going to eat that loaf of bread, have our students taught, but we're not going to pay you what 
we owe. And annually they owe about $30 million according to the current funding arrangement. So my estimate is that by the end of this financial year, they will be owing USD $88 million, the burden of which is falling on the other 11 member countries and on parents and students who are paying privately. And of course, let's not forget that the donors, Australia and New Zealand, are now also funding something like 20% of USD's revenue. Now, uh, back in the 90s, you were the Director of Planning and Development at the USP, and you were looking at the figures. You came to some interesting conclusions. Well, the big problem is that when the university first started, basically, there was no such thing as tuition fees and all that kind of stuff. So what has happened is that pretty much 80-90% of the university's revenue came from the government, which was divided up amongst them according to students and according to how much USP spent in their countries. But what has happened in the last 25-30 years is that the tuition fees have become a much larger proportion of USP revenues. It's about 30% now. The donor funding has gone from 5% to about 20-25%, And government grants, what we call government grants, which is a real misnomer, they're not grants per se. They're actually payments for students being taught by USC. has gone down to 21% now. So really, what is called government grants is not grants at all. They're actually payment by the Fiji government for all the students who are coming from Fiji, whether sponsored by the Fiji government or coming privately, you know, and paying whatever fees uh, are being charged by USC. So things have changed quite a lot. And there's a solution that is in front of the USC Council, you know, if they have got the courage to grasp that solution. That is to do what? Basically, what they need to do is to subsume what they call government grants, which are not really government grants. It amounts to only about $40 million a year, only $40 million, out of a total USC revenue of $200 million. That $40 million can simply be subsumed into the tuition fees. So tuition fees will effectively increase by whatever amount is necessary to keep USP revenues at that figure. And what it will mean is that for the 11 member countries who are currently paying their bills to USP, It'll make no difference, this change that I'm suggesting. But, of course, it'll make a difference to one government. And if they then insist on sending students to USP, but not paying USP what they owe USP for getting them taught, then USP will be entitled to say to the students, okay, go home, you're not going to be registered until you've paid your fees, which is what happens in every other university in Australia and New Zealand. And there is a long-term solution that they're in front of the member countries, but they've got to bite the bullet and do it. Otherwise, what's happening, uh, uh, Don, and you can see it, Australia and New Zealand don't want to say anything to Fiji government because they've been neutralized by this China bogey. You know, so then you're so friendly with the Fiji government, you know, they don't want to speak harsh truth to them. And then you see what you're seeing, of course, is the Marshall Islands, you know, splitting away, Kiribati splitting away, right? And, you know, this unity that they talk about, you know, in the Forum Secretariat, it's not really, you know, it's all, all a lot of hot air, to be honest. Yes, but if you, given that the majority of the students are Fijians... Yes. And suddenly they found themselves having to pay far higher fees. Is that going to dramatically reduce the student numbers at the USP? No, it, it won't be far higher, uh, Don, because uh, it will be just to make up for the short, so shortfall that the Fiji government is currently not paying, paying them. And just remember, the Fiji government is not the Fiji government paying. It's not, you know, Kayum and Beni Marama paying. It's coming from the taxpayers. So, I mean, if, if the Fiji government still refuses to pay those uh, 
what it owes USP, then all that will happen is that that amount will have to be raised from the students. And uh, I doubt very much if many, too many of them are going to stay home because, you know, at the end of the day, USP still provides incredible value for money for the kinds of degrees it uh, produces. And these graduates are working all over the world, including Australia and New Zealand. And, you know, USP produces these graduates at about, you know, a, a quarter of the cost that Australian and New Zealand universities uh, use up. There has been for quite a long time, I think, through this debacle, suggestions of the university or the main part of the university moving from Fiji. Is that feasible? No, it's not feasible. I mean, you can have the vice-chancellor moving to Samoa. It doesn't make any difference to the university. I mean, the fact of the matter is it's, a, you know, it, it, it's like a booming fish cannery, you know. You cite your cannery where the biggest supplies are. And, you know, the, over the years, USP has tried to decentralize its facilities, like the School of Agriculture in, in Alapur. Well, it has stagnated for 30 years. The law school in Vanuatu hasn't done too badly. But even that law school, the first years of that law program are taught at USP at Lodala. And they go there for the last uh, the last year or so. And 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 honestly, you know, you have if you go and look at the the origins of the students at Auckland University or Monash University, they come from all over the world now. And and they're going there because the university is providing a quality education with quality staff and quality facilities. So students will keep going to USC. And and now that we've got a lot of other universities, there's NUS in Samoa, there's Solomon Islands University in, in Solomon. A lot of Pacific Island students can now shop around for better value for money. If USC doesn't offer them good value for money, they can go elsewhere. And that's how it should be. Advocates for ending pay gaps for ethnic and minority groups in Aotearoa are reiterating their calls to the New Zealand government and business leaders to urgently address the shocking pay gap for Pacifica people. Founders of the Mind the Gap campaign say new data just released shows much of the pay gap for Pacifica men and women is likely due to racism or unconscious bias by employers. Campaign co-founder Joe Cribb says this comes as no surprise and that many New Zealand businesses would be unaware that they are demonstrating bias in their workforce and the best way to address that is to measure pay gaps. Kia ora and welcome on Pacific Waves, Joe. Just how bad is the pay gap for Pacifica? So at the moment, um, when a Pacific woman uh, goes to work, uh, she will earn 75 cents in the dollar to a Pākehā man. And for a Pacifica man, uh, that's 81 cents. And um, we can often think about this as, as numbers. We can think about it as kind of statistics. But what it actually is, and... Um, is actually about um, your ability to earn a good wage, free from discrimination, uh, to be paid what you're worth and um, to be able to provide for your families. So that's what the pay gaps are. They're about uh, what the um, median woman earns, what the median man earns and the differences in that. And, And then we're talking about for the same job, for the same qualifications coming in across the board, right? Yeah, well, the um, way pay gaps are calculated, particularly the gender pay gap, is um, there's different uh, elements to it. So one piece of it is um, pay equity. So it's actually law in uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand, that if you are doing the same job as someone else, so someone says your colleague is sitting next to you, you should be paid uh, the same amount. But we know that that doesn't happen. It's illegal. We know that many um, organisations, and it isn't necessarily malice. So think about... um, Say you're doing administrative work in one division and somebody else is doing an administrative job in another division of an organisation, 
one division might have really highly paid people and you end up just being caught up and you end up getting paid more and um, other people might have, the whole group might be paid less and so you end up getting paid less, but yet you're doing the same job as someone else. That's called paid equity. It's just not okay and it's illegal. When we look at the gender pay gap, that's a bit more sophisticated um, analysis and it base, basically takes in an organisation and it ranks everybody's pay and go, where is the middle man and where is the middle woman and compares it. And what that tells us then about who has access to promotion, who is in the best paid jobs, who isn't, who works where, and it gives us a much more uh, sophisticated uh, analysis about um, you know, who is really having access to power, who has access to choices in an organisation. And that's why it's such an important uh, discussion. It isn't only about being paid uh, fairly for the same job. It's also about being able to access the same opportunities as your colleagues, to be promoted, to get over time, to, you know, to end up in the boss's seat. Um, and that's what we want as well. And, and how does New Zealand's figures compare to other jurisdictions? So we, um, for our overall gender pay gap, it's set around 10% for a couple of decades. So we're kind of stuck. Now, 10% is a lot and that kind of, and it hides all the differences. So 10% is um, for everyone, but we know that for Pacific women, it's more like 25%. When you compare us internationally, we look okay. So Australia probably has a gap around 20 and through Europe, it's probably all around 20. But I think what we should focus on is, is actually the detail when you start to break it down. It, and so the 10% really does hide um, all the difference. And that's what we want to focus on. So for a Pacifica woman earning 75 cents in a Pākehā man's dollar, I mean, that's the real where the money really hits the road, right? What's the call here? We uh, know from international experience that one of the fastest ways to get some traction on pay gaps is to make them transparent. So that for that, it would mean organisations actually have to publish their pay gaps so that you knew what Pacifica woman earned, what Māori woman earned, what uh, European and Pākehā men and women earned, so that um, you could actually then see and choose if you wanted to work for them. But also, um, in order to, to um, have to publish them, the organisations have to look and they have to then own uh, what is happening in their organisations. When this happens, we know, uh, you know, if there is some legislation that makes pay gaps uh, reporting actually law, we can we'll probably see about a twenty percent drop in the particularly the gender pay gap. So that means Pacific women will earn you know twenty percent um, of that gap more. We think that equates for somebody on a median income to about thirty five dollars a week. So there's a real game here, right? This is about removing discrimination in pay, and that's generally what pay gaps are, are being driven by at the moment. It's what the recent research shows that was released this week uh, for Pacific uh, earners. It shows the gender that's what the research shows from the gender perspective it's actually about discrimination and stereotypes and bias if we can flush that all out by making it very transparent one we can choose who we work for and two um, organizations have to own up to it and nobody wants to have a huge gap and most of them will start addressing it which means we will actually see money in pacifica pockets um, because that you know that's where most of the discrimination is now how responsive has the private sector, public sector, been to these kind of calls in the past? 
Yeah, great question. So at the moment, um, the public sector, the core public sector agencies have been publishing their gender pay gaps. And this year, in the next few months, they're actually now going to also publish the ethnic ones. So we will all be able to see the Pacifica pay gaps for our core government agencies. And I think that's amazing leadership, right? It's, it's absolutely stepping up to the mark. We um, at Mind the Gap went to our um, business colleagues and said, you know, we'll create a register, a place where you can report. And we've got upwards of 55 really big employers doing that. So there are there is business leaders here that know they have gaps and are working to address them. But um, that's only 55. We think there should be about another 5,000 organisations that, um, that actually report. So that's what we're pushing for. So we have been advocating uh, really strongly for the government to put in pay gap reporting to make it compulsory uh, so that we see the benefits. And um, I don't know about you, but um, winter bites, right? The costs of heating, the extra costs of food, like doing this now really matters. That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Thank you, Tomas. And we'll give you follow up next time more.